From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP Immediate Past President Sophia Thomas, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by one of the foremost HIV clinicians and researchers in this country. He is director of the REACH Initiative, co-director of Clinical Core at Hopkins Center for AIDS Research, and a past president of the Association of Nurses in AIDS Care. His research seeks to streamline care approaches that optimize navigation, linkage, engagement, and retention in care for people with infectious diseases, including studies designed to keep patients engaged in care for over long periods of illnesses. It is my pleasure today to welcome nurse practitioner and Let's Stop HIV Together NP Clinical Ambassador, Dr. Jason Farley. Welcome to NP Pulse. Thanks, Dr. Thomas. It's great to be here. Uh, We're so glad to have you. And you know, uh, Dr. Farley, Jason, uh, we've been taking care of uh, HIV patients for for and AIDS patients for forty years now, and there's a lot that we've learned. So much has come out as far as uh, HIV diagnosis, diagnosis, treatment, management, and really, nurse practitioners have an important role to play as we evaluate patients. It's important now for us to assess their sexual health and um, do. do proper testing. And so I know there's a lot that you can share with us knowing your expertise. Why don't you, uh, first of all, let's talk to talk to me and tell me about yourself and, and the work that you do. Certainly. Well, um, my career began in the early 90s and I was doing a BSN at the University of Alabama and really had this wonderful opportunity to work at the University of Alabama, Birmingham at the 1917 Clinic, which was the local HIV service organization uh, in Birmingham at the time. And at that point, we would, you know, as students volunteer to transport people living with HIV all the way from Tuscaloosa, Alabama to Birmingham, Alabama, as as literally like their Uber (laughs) back Uh and forth toward for health. Um, And so I got to speak to patients for just this hour long drive each way and, and really just you know, fell in love with the opportunity to care for such a vulnerable group of people. Um, I, I then did an MPH in infectious disease epi, um, so I left nursing for a little while, although I was working clinically as a nurse in, in psych mental health, providing outpatient uh, care to at, inpatients' homes uh, with severe mental illness. So that was a, a, another unique experience of a vulnerable population that, um, again, drove the passion for the community uh, after finishing that MPH in infectious disease epi, I went to come to came to Johns Hopkins and did, became a nurse practitioner. Did the, a second master's degree to do that, and then eventually got wrapped into that research bug and and finished a PhD at Hopkins and have been focusing my career on the intersection of of clinically informed research since that time. Wow, and you and you know what you've got so many credentials behind your name, which our our viewers will see, our listeners will see in the show notes. Um, and you've also been working with the Reach Initiative at John Johns Hopkins. Tell us about that. Sure. 
Well, I founded REACH to really signify the important role nursing can play uh, and advanced practice nurses can play in the diagnosis, treatment, and or prevention of uh, infectious diseases. Our initial mission, of course, was HIV specifically, but we've broadened that over the years to include sexually transmitted diseases um, in our work. And globally, we do a lot of tuberculosis hepatitis work as well. So we really focus on, um, you know, the, the care cascade for patients with infectious disease. So how do we make diagnosis more convenient for patients? What are ways and systems and processes we can do to increase the likelihood a patient receives an HIV test? Uh, we then, once a patient's diagnosed, how do we encourage them to be linked to care and, and facilitate that linkage to care for them? It's an overwhelming diagnosis, particularly if it's one that's held in a community event, right? Such as a, a pride festival or, or you know, it just visiting a local library and someone's newly diagnosed. But we wanna make sure that they're um, basically walked through the process of the patient navigation to get linked to care in an HIV uh, provider. And then uh, after that, we, we have a variety of interventions we implement to help people stay in care. You know, there are many things that prevent viral suppression, uh, mental health, substance abuse, lots of other um, things, racism and, and structural discrimination that will impact whether or not someone remains virally suppressed. And so our team works to try to help eliminate uh, those barriers. We have a mantra in our team called uh, unapologetically enabling. So we really seek to enable the patient's engagement and care in, in as many ways as possible. That's amazing. It's That's great, strong work. And it's so important with these patients because this is a, a lifelong diagnosis that they they have to deal with. And, right. you know, it's been 40 years, uh, June 5th marked 40 years since the first report of AIDS and the CDC's MMWR. And, you know, a lot has changed in the, the diagnosis, testing uh, and treatment of uh, HIV positive patients. And, you know, let's talk about that. I mean, early on, you've been a, a nurse for a long time, as well as I, what have you seen the epidemic do? And, and how has this changed throughout your career? Yeah, well, well, certainly in, you know, the 80s into the early 90s, uh, when I was coming of age, you know, the diagnosis of HIV and many patients diagnosed with AIDS at the same time uh, was hugely, um, um, hugely associated with death, to be frank. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, and so, you know, the patients we were seeing at that time, it was about really all we had to offer was exceptional nursing care. Um, I see that exact same uh, scenario play out with COVID-19 pre, pre-treatments. You know, really what you had to offer was supportive measures and, and excellent nursing care. Um, so, you know, these, these pandemics pre-treatment really do um, uh, bring out the best in the, the nursing community and our, what we have to offer. Um, you know, we've now progressed to the point where, in my opinion, HIV is easier to treat than, than diabetes. Take, for example, you know, the patients with diabetes really need twice daily therapy often with metformin, right, as our initial therapy. They require finger stick monitoring, daily basis, glucose logs, changes in diet, which are often exceptionally difficult. For most patients, the majority of patients with HIV, the vast majority of them, we're starting a one pill once a day regimen. That one pill once a day regimen is, you know, contains that cocktail that many people know well, the highly active antiretroviral therapy. 
And quite frankly, in the placebo-controlled trials for these newer regimens, we, we see that side effects are almost equivalent to that of placebo. They're exceptionally well-tolerated regimens with you know, no variability like you would see in a metformin patient with glucose monitoring, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So extremely well-tolerated regimens, extremely uh, low side effect uh, profiles, and resistance barrier, barriers to resistant HIV in fa- likelihood that are substantial. So even a patient who has marginal, some marginal adherence is unlikely to get breakthrough resistance with these newer agents. So I, I would say that in terms of treatment, we also know one exceptionally important piece of information, and that is a patient with viral suppression whose viral load is completely undetectable, and most labs are measuring that at less than 20 copies, cannot scientifically proven, cannot transmit HIV. So they are, quite frankly, uh, one of the lowest risk sexual partners for people when they're considering. And I say that specifically because it's such a stigmatizing illness. But if someone's diagnosed on therapy with viral suppression, you will not get HIV from that individual. And so in terms of, you know, thinking about and breaking down stigmas for patients, uh, treatment is absolutely uh, akin to prevention. And they can live a, a normal, healthy life. And so let's let's uh, let's go back for a bit. I want to talk about because you know before people are, are diagnosed and they're treated, that we need to do testing. And now we're yeah. seeing um, you know HIV associated with other STIs or or STDs, as some people still say. Um, yeah. And and there's such, been such advances in testing, and we can now do it in our own offices. And it's really important to incorporate this into our daily practice, whether you're in um, primary care or or even in some specialty practice. Let's, uh, you know, let's talk about the testing. Yeah, absolutely. So as point of care test, uh, we've seen such progress in HIV testing, right? So most point of care tests across the United States today are third generation tests. So they do have a slightly longer window period between exposure and the potential for positive tests. But fourth generation's testing is available, which combine antigen and antibody testing, right? Which gives us a a shorter window period. And those are being approved across the country left and right. Uh, So that's a really important finding. So you want to know, am I testing with a third generation versus a fourth generation test? So that's one of the things that an NP should consider. And those are, and those are CLIA wave can be done in your office with a finger stick or a a oral swab. swab. Right. Those are either, either finger stick or oral swab. Either can be done and they can all be done by certified medical assistants, by an RN in your office. They don't require the provider to do. Um, Obviously, depending on the state, there are different regulations regarding pre and post-test counseling. So, for example, in Maryland, uh, over the last five years, we've moved to opt-out testing, meaning that I, as their primary care provider, would say to a patient, hey, today I'm screening you for a variety of different conditions. HIV is included in that screening. Um, any, Any questions about that? And as long as they have no questions and don't opt out of HIV testing, I can test them without additional consent in our in our office practices that changes if i'm doing an event in the field and i'm not in a medical care setting and i'm testing patients for hiv in those circumstances we still are required paper consent to test for hiv and and let's talk about the the populations now most at risk of of hiv that's shifted over the past several years as well we're really 
concern now with rural and underserved populations, seeing the the growth in in those populations, isn't that is that right? Yeah, the the most recent large scale outbreaks have been in rural populations and in mostly rural states, and it's been directly tied to the opioid crisis and ep- and epidemic. So you know. The inner city wave of the opioid epidemic and associated with HIV, really with heroin, occurred in the 80s. And that's really, we saw that injection drug use. Well, now HIV is turned to patients who initially were starting oral opioids and have now moved into injection drug use and don't have harm reduction services available. So they don't have clean needle services available. They don't have access to any form of substance use counseling. And when they move into those spaces, they often begin to share needles with others. And so the outbreaks occurred in Indiana and in West Virginia and in parts of Massachusetts have all been associated with rural parts of those states uh, and the opioid crisis where patients move from pill form into injectable forms. And and now I'm here in New Orleans, Louisiana, and we're seeing a lot of HIV in the southern states now as well. Yeah, our, the largest concentration of, of new diagnoses remains in the southern part of the United States. And um, if you look at the CDC, the way the CDC defines southern, you know, it's from Maryland over to Texas. Uh, so kind of along the coastline there, just in that kind of reverse, like a J pattern. So those are the states um, that are experiencing the highest numbers of cases. Now, that is not in typically in that area of the country, always substance use driven. That remains, uh, we see the majority of infections in the community among uh, same sex, uh, men who have sex with men. So particularly we see larger numbers of cases among people of color. Um, and so also bisexuality as an identity uh, where men will have sex with both men and women, that places women, heterosexual, cisgender, heterosexual women at greater risk as well. And so when we look at the epidemiology um, uh, among men who have sex with men, the, the latest suggestions are that um, one in two African-American men may become HIV positive, one in four Hispanic men and one in six um, uh gay uh, white men. So those statistics are staggering and are really important for us to pay attention to. Now, I I will say one more point, however. Most importantly, as a primary care provider, if your patient comes out to you and identifies that they are uh, gay, bisexual, or, um, uh, you know, gender fluid, um, whatever their their personal um, description of themselves may be, um, it's really important for your first response not to be, I'm going to test you for HIV. It must be yeah. a holistic sexual approach because the gay community feels over HIV tested and over targeted, particularly um, black men feel over targeted and over tested. And so you really want to establish that rapport have them trust you. If you offer and slap them in the face the very first visit with an HIV test, you actually may be scaring that patient away. Um, So first of all, I would congratulate them on feeling comfortable enough to say, hey, I am part of the LGBTQ community to you. And then I would say, you know, what are your priorities for your health, including your sexual health, and let them drive that ship as much as possible. And that's what nurse practitioners, I think, do so well is build that rapport and, and have that communication uh, with our patients and, and the relationship is so important. And from there, you know, you can, the possibilities are endless once you right. have that great patient relationship. And so 
We've got uh, testing that can we, we can do in our office, point of care testing. It is reimbursed. And there are several options that can be done. So I encourage, you know, all of our listeners, if you're not doing HIV testing in your office, please uh, seek that out. Now, there are some uh, EMR strategies I know that you can help us with as far as uh, tips and tricks and reminders for testing. Um, That's something that can be incorporated. Absolutely. So in terms of, you know, one, one most important thing that I always say to my patient is, the things that I have to document uh, from a billing perspective to get like HIV testing covered uh, can sometimes be very uh, stigmatizing. So, for mm-hmm. example, if someone comes into my office and they want uh, prevention, like HIV prevention through PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, the way I have to bill that and code that testing is through high-risk sexual behavior. Yep. And then you have to code it as bisexual, homosexual, or, or the like, right? And when patients see that, and sometimes they're watching you click every button on the EMR, um, I often warn them that I'm going to be doing that and I have to code it this way. And that it's not a judgment of saying they're, you're high-risk. It is just the way I have to code this. Um uh, the LGBTQ community doesn't like to be identified in a risk bucket. They, they have much more positive reframing of, of sexual health. So that's the first thing I, I say to my patients. The CDC actually recommends that individuals between the ages of 13 to 64 be tested for HIV at least once in their lifetime. Now, this may increase based on the patient's risk. For example, patients on in a PrEP program receive HIV testing every 90 days. So you determine the frequency of HIV testing based on an individual's personal risk. And anytime you're screening a patient for an STI, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, whatever it may be, HIV should be added to that evaluation. Um, I know that Oftentimes, people will think, well, I can obtain the test and send it away, and I don't have to have this urgent conversation right now, but we often have a missed opportunity for point-of-care testing with that HIV test at the same time. Absolutely. Um, So from an EMR strategy, I would say add annual reminders, and number two, figure out who on your staff can go through the appropriate training to do any necessary state-based pre-test counseling and post-test counseling so that by the time you walk in the room to see the patient, your test result is already available and you can disclose the test result and, and follow up from there. Absolutely. And, you know, we've incorporated that into my own practice uh, to do the routine HIV as well as STI screening on, on patients. And it's so beneficial. And we, we catch a lot of things, especially in those teenagers that may report that they're not sexually active. Um, it's amazing the things that you can find. And so every opportunity to teach uh, uh, our patients is so, so important. Um, so we, we've got our patients tested. And so now we need to look at, uh, let's say the test is negative, but we want to be sure that they're, they're safe and they're taking precautions. And there's now we have PrEP, which is relatively new. And it's just been amazing, mm-hmm. um, the, the work that's done with PrEP. Tell, because, you know, some of our listeners may not understand PrEP, how it works. Uh, it's, let's talk about PrEP and then what's the future of, of PrEP. Uh, yeah. So um, really you know, rarely you see huge revolutions that are going to change things so nicely. And PrEP is one of those game-changing revolutions, right? So pre-exposure prophylaxis is the ability of someone who has risk for HIV to take a pill daily 
in parts of Europe, they even take it on demand, meaning they, they take it at, at a different sequence. And we can talk about that. But, but in the United States, we're approved for daily oral um, uh, medication. And there are two forms. Uh, one is called um, Truvada. One is called Discovi. Okay, so those are the same drug. They're just different uh, uh, moieties of, of the drug. Um, the Truvada has now become generic and is available as Teva um, in its generic form. So there, there are really three different options. So if a patient, or if you're in an FQHC or have patients who struggle with copays, um, there is a generic form of Truvada that are also available. Uh, the pros and cons is, is a slight uh, higher incidence of renal insufficiency if you use Truvada versus um, uh, Descovy, and that's the whole reason Descovy was designed because it it concentrates more intracellularly than in the plasma, and therefore has less uh, renal impact. Um, but but in terms of protection, if someone takes the drug, for example, they take it daily, we see ninety five percent plus. Uh, efficacy in preventing HIV infection in, in very high-risk communities. So it's been trialed in sex workers. It's been trialed in patients with multiple unprotected sexual partners over a six-month period. It's been trialed in patients who uh, know, have known zero different relationships. So, so in heterosexual couples, for example, in one uh, in throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, it was used where one partner was positive and one partner is negative. And for any of you who've done work in that region, know that um, condom use is culturally um, very uh, unlikely, particularly in a heterosexual couple where there's a, a, a marriage. Um, but there's lots of zero different couples, one being positive and one negative. And in that circumstance, it protected the HIV negative partner. Um, it was called Partners Prep. It's a great study. You should take a peek at it. Um, but it actually has been shown very beneficial. Yet, however, in the United States, we really have seen this huge disparity in PrEP uptake. So the white gay male population, totally on board, totally using it, totally being prescribed it. Yet our highest risk is in the black gay male population and um, underutilized, significantly underutilized. And that it becomes both from the offer of the prescription and the uptake. So it's a, a double-edged sword there. And then ultimately our... Um, Female population is very underutilized for PrEP. So, you know, anyone, any female that comes to your office who had an STI might be a great candidate for using PrEP and should be considered. So that's something that that if we're out practicing in primary care, and whether you're in a rural, practicing with an underserved community, or really any patients, if they come in and they are high risk for STI, HIV, if they are, have a diagnosis of an STI, this should really be a conversation that we that we have with them. And it's uh, certainly, are there any side effects to um, to prep? Yeah, so um, the side effects are typically self-limited, and most patients have none. But for those who do get them, they usually last from anywhere from four to six weeks. Um, initially, maybe a little nausea in some patients. So I generally recommend they, if they do get nausea, they take it with food. Um, there also might be some patients who report uh, a little bit of GI upset, some diarrhea. That's generally less than 10% of patients. And ultimately, uh, one of the benefits that many of my PrEP patients say that to me, they're like, oh, initially when I started taking it, I found myself losing a little weight. Uh, it's mostly associated with patients who have diarrhea, frankly, but, um, but that, that resolves over about a four to six week period and patients report no additional side effects after that period. That's great. So this is something that we should really incorporate into our practices and consider. And I, I had somebody ask me, do I need to have any kind of special training to, to prescribe PrEP? 
Well, there are a couple of different options for you. Um, so we have an entire Coursera course on prep and uh, its use uh, that you can check out. So it's free online training. The AIDS Education and Training Centers are available throughout the, the country, and you can check out your local AETC in your region uh, that would offer prep training. Generally, what we do in our team for, for Baltimore City and the state of Maryland is we we give providers a one day training. Uh, basically, it's just really introducing them to the pharmacology, what to expect, uh, when to offer. But most importantly, it's the testing algorithm more than anything that needs to be the person needs training on. So if a patient comes in and says, oh, I stopped my prep and I, you know, I stopped it five days ago, but I had unprotected sex last night. How do you follow up and manage that? How do you, you know, do you do a viral load on that patient as opposed to an antibody test, which clearly won't be positive at that point? Um, and so, so we really walk through the various scenarios that clinicians may face in the real world. Um, you know, I've had patients come in seeking prep who wound up testing HIV positive uh, the day that we test them. So, and they were obviously, they need referral for antiretroviral treatment, or luckily I, I do both. So I can just start them on treatment the same day. But if you didn't and weren't expecting that, you know, are your resources ready to go for where you would refer a patient who tests newly, di who did newly diagnosed, right? The, the other thing is, is now we're really moving into a scenario where we will have later in 2021 injectable options for PrEP. So a patient would literally see, receive one injection uh, every two months, and that's called cabotegravir. Now, that new drug is with the FDA for men who have sex with men and will be coming soon for women, um, and that's under review. So the important thing there is that it has actually been shown to be superior to Truvada. There was a head-to-head -head wow. comparison, placebo-controlled, you know, non-placebo-controlled trial, a direct comparison with Truvada. And um, it showed superiority. And the main reason of that superiority at preventing HIV related to the fact that once you take this injection, it's a long-acting bioavailable drug. So you have high levels of drug for a very long time. Whereas with Travada, missed pills, you know, misregimens, yeah. compliance, adherence, all of that, it goes into play. Exactly. And so, but there's no, just to, just to make it clear for our listeners, no one has to take a special course to prescribe PrEP. No, no, not at all. Uh, there's no additional regulatory. It's not like buprenorphine or hepatitis yeah. C treatment. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's so important because this is something that we could all integrate into our practices, and it's it's so, so important. Um, now, let's talk about, we have, uh, the CDC has an initiative, Let's Stop HIV Together. I think we really need to talk about that a little bit, and you're working with them as well, right? Yes, I'm a clinical ambassador with the Let's Stop HIV Together program. And so what is this program doing? You know, it's really designed to be a, a, a service for providers and the community, as well as the, the, the general population providing uh, any type of supportive services to patients with HIV. It's, the program is designed to really help you understand how to integrate both HIV testing and linkage to care for patients. Um, it is a program that really helps to provide uh, for your clinical practices, for example, there are posters, there's training, there's additional resources that might help you think about ways you might integrate uh, HIV testing into your EMR. Uh, there will be a variety of, of, of links from this podcast uh, about exactly how to access those resources uh, for each of our listeners. But really, the, the goal here is to be, number one, um, help everyone realize that they have a role to play in stopping HIV letting them know that it's not a challenging 
um, a procedure to implement in your office, right? HIV testing, referral, linkage, uh, and or treatment, uh, depending on your circumstances. Uh, and then the program is really designed to bring access to, um, to, to experts in HIV like myself and others who can um, speak to audiences, offer education and training related to um, ways in which uh, a individual provider, primary care provider or specialist uh, can engage uh, in HIV prevention and or treatment. That's amazing. And we're going to link in our show notes, we're going to link to Let's Stop HIV Together because uh, I checked it out. There are so many resources available for us to provide education um, as well as, you know, tips for our patients and things like that. So I encourage all of our listeners to check this out. And I think, you know, one last thing I want to touch on briefly is not every clinician is comfortable talking about sexual health or HIV. And that's really something over the last few years that's uh, become apparent that we need to address and feel comfortable with. What are some things that you can tell our listeners as as they are in their practices each day, um, how to get more comfortable with that? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. So I, I would say, you know, I would I would begin by telling you know a slight patient story, right? Um, there is, I had a patient who came to me who, throughout the conversation. You know, this is probably a 45 minute conversation and they weren't being very clear as to why they felt they needed STI screening because they continued to report no risk at all. And so I was trying to unpack, right? You know, you, you've mentioned today that I should do a, you know, chlamydia gonorrhea screening and I've, of course I was going to do it, but I was trying to unpack why they, they really wanted that to happen when they reported that they had not had sexual activity in the last three years. That's the story that I was given. Mm-hmm. And I was working with this patient and, you know, there was so much shame and stigma that, that the patient brought to the table that they were unwilling to say that, that they had engaged with a commercial sex worker. They had bought sex. They had, uh, through that encounter, believed that they now had an STI. And it literally took a conversation of about 45 minutes to, to, to kind of unpack that that and get, with that get it out yeah right and and it really helped us working through that when when he said you know look i i hired a female sex worker and i uh was just feeling lonely and this is what happened and i said you know what thank you you know thank you for sharing that story that was completely vulnerable but the reason why that's important for me to know is because i'm now going to add some additional testing and screening that we probably need to be aware of you know, um, and we really talked about the importance of just an open, honest dialogue. So a couple of things to note. If you find yourself turning red and embarrassed when a patient admits certain activities or behaviors to you, you need to practice more. Absolutely. That's, that's the first thing. You cannot, if you blush, um, is it, that is the first sign that your patient is going to stop telling you things. Um, so no matter what's said to you, you really need to control that, that, that response as much as possible. You need to, to be open. Uh, and in my patients, you know, I'm, I'm often having dialogues uh, and asking them the first question. And I said, I'm going to ask you some questions about your sexual history. And I just want to say up front that there's nothing you can say to me that is going to be embarrassing. I'd rather you be open so that we can do a great sexual health conversation. So basically tell me. Uh, what you need me to know. And I said, and another thing, because I screen you for chlamydia gonorrhea, 
I will screen you in every orifice in which you're sexually active. So basically my mantra is if you put it there, I'm going to screen there. And so I need to know everywhere that that may happen uh, because we'll screen you for these STIs. And we have this dialogue. The patient um, comes out and says, you know, they've had, you know, X number of partners in their life. And my first question to them is, is that enough? Do you want, <laughs> are you, do you want more? Are, are you as sexually active as you want to be? Because we, I'm trying to reframe any conversation that they've ever had around sex into a positive framing. Sex is about pleasure, whether one is a married couple or, or a, uh, a single person looking for, you know, intimacy. Uh, sex is about pleasure. And, and taking STIs away from it, it was designed in order for our course for procreation, but it's also one of the most pleasurable experiences our patients have. And for many of them, they've never really had a clinician talk to them about sex as pleasurable. They talk to them about the things, the bad things that happen as a result of sex, mm -hmm. right? Underage pregnancy or, you know, uh, you know, STIs or all those things. But I, I try to always frame my conversations around sexual health as, as you, you are, uh, you know, sex is normal. You should not be embarrassed about your sexual activity and uh, it is a total part of, um, you, know, you know, normal mental health, right, to have a, 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 an appropriate sexual uh, relationship. So then we'll unpack uh, anything uh, that comes out of that sexual dialogue. So I've diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder through a sexual history uh, and actually the patient had not disclosed. And I, I really went through the sexual history and based on what the patient was describing, I said, well, it seems to me like there are some really important things we need to follow up on. And, and I asked an additional series of questions and he's like, you know, basically you're the first person who's ever really put their finger on the fact that I have been diagnosed with OCD and I have sexual compulsions that come out of you know, and are represented here. And it was simply by taking a thorough sexual history, mm -hmm. right? And so, so much more can be learned by your sexual history than just, um, you know, um, the need to screen for STIs and HIV. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a point you've made is it's so important to sit down and, and as nurse practitioners do, spend time with the patients, have a conversation with them, build that relationship, because out of that, it, it helps guide our diagnosis and our treatment, certainly. Right. Absolutely. So let's, you know, Dr. Farley, this has been a great conversation. You've provided us so much information. I appreciate you spending time with us here at NP Pulse. And we're certainly going to share all the information that you shared. Um, and let's, let's stop HIV together. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much, Jason, for all of your hard work in this space and for joining us today. Now, I want to invite you to become a part of your National Professional Association and add your voice to the over 119,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. If you're not currently an AANP member, I urge you to join today. Along with many member benefits that support your continuing education and your practice needs, AANP provides advocacy for nurse practitioners and our patients, fighting for critical issues like full and direct access to care, equity in payment, and changes to outdated laws and regulations. Now is the time for all of us to join together. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm.